Did you just call me Quiz? I did. I called you Quiz. It's baby talk because you're doing it with Wyatt. I know. Coop, you're going to be a great dad. I knew you would. I'm so happy uh, for the love that you're getting with your little man, Wyatt. Someday he'll be doing crazy flips off a diving board. (laughs) And then your hair will move like this as well. I'll see you, buddy. Anderson, have a good night. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to primetime. The president wants you to pay attention to the following numbers during this pandemic. I want to give you some numbers which are rather spectacular that just came out. The strength in new car sales is also evident in the used car market where soaring demand, literally soaring demand, is putting upward pressure on the used car prices. I think most people are anywhere from surprised to shocked by these numbers. I don't know what car sales have to do with fighting a pandemic. The answer is nothing, right? But that's how he started the coronavirus press briefing. I do know there are a lot less people to drive cars because we have 157,000 dead Americans. And there are a lot of people who are too sick to drive cars as well because we have over 4 million cases. He says people are shocked and surprised by these numbers. No, I doubt they are shocked by anything anymore. Maybe that you would try to distract from the fact that our lives are being compromised by a pandemic against which you refuse to do what you could. And I doubt that they're even surprised anymore that you are well aware of the reality. You cannot plead ignorance. You know what governors are begging you to do. You dismiss their needs as easily as this. I've gone to your rallies, I've talked to your people, they love you, they listen to you, they listen to every word you say, they hang on your every word. They don't listen to me or the media or Fauci, they think we're fake news. They wanna get their advice from you. And so when they hear you say, everything's under control, don't worry about wearing masks. I mean, these are people, many of them are older people, well, Mr. President. What's of control? Yeah, under the it's giving them a false sense right of security. Now, I think it's under control, I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying, that's true. And you ha- it is what it is. That is the truest thing he has ever said to you. It is what it is, is a big expression uh, in this country, certainly in New York, specifically in Queens, where he and I come from. It is what it is in this context, is it is a pandemic, a pandemic that is being allowed to run rampant by his inaction. That is what it is. But we test so much Maybe we test too much, they say in the books and manuals. No, there is no manual. There is no book, okay? The reality of testing is it takes too long and it's not being done in the right places in the right ways. So our kids are going to be out of school thanks to his inaction in too many places too many kids. He is right. It is what it is, a pandemic that is eating us alive. Not a hoax, not disappearing, a pandemic that we are handling worse than too many other places because it is what it is. And more importantly, he is who he is. We are continuing to monitor and monitor particular hotspots across the south, southwest, and the west. 
And we're seeing indications that our strong mitigation efforts are working very well, actually. The recent rise in cases has not been accompanied by a significant increase in deaths. He is tied to the script because he has no independent grasp other than what people are telling him. Now, the shame goes to the people who are writing these messages for him to read to you that they know are deceptive. They are not doing everything they can do to fight this pandemic. I thought the carnage was supposed to stop with this administration. More crime, according to him now, tougher economy, according to him now, and a pandemic that was not of Trump's making, but is certainly out of control because of Trump's inaction. The daily average of deaths has roughly doubled when other countries have seen it reduce. 500 plus additional deaths a day and the president says that's insignificant? He won't say when all Americans will have access to the rapid COVID test because he doesn't know and it's not his focus. We are looking at that very strongly. How do you look at something strongly? Hmm. They're doing nothing. Why does the UK have 90 minute test turnaround and capability and we don't? We are the richest country in the world with the greatest resources. That was his pitch. MAGA was about manufacturing at its best. I would argue that it was a dog whistle to a culture war uh, that he wants to fight about us versus them, including race and religion, which it certainly was early on. And it is every chance he gets a chance to make it that. But at its best, it was about bringing back manufacturing. Isn't this the perfect time to kickstart companies? What's worse than that inaction, his insane pushing of states to send our kids to schools that he knows are not safe. His kid's not going back to school like that, I guarantee you. That is what it is, too. It is unsafe to send kids to places that can't space can't trace cases they get, and can't even test in time. Did you hear that a second grader just tested positive after attending classes on the first day of school? His or her classmates and teacher now quarantining for 14 days? How many of us, including my family, I'm going through this just like you, how many of us are going to have to decide to keep our kids out of school? And then what? Who's going to help with the cost for so many of you not being able to work? What's it going to do to our kids? How is it not going to result in imbalances in places where people have money and they're able to put together these pods? You hearing about pods, families getting together, grouping who's excluded, who's got the money to pay for extra teachers because the schools can't do the work in America? This is the time for government to work for us. This is why we have a federal government. So we must keep pressing for it to do what it can. And that means we can only spend so much time complaining about the status quo because we only know what we show. What can we do? 
Let's turn to a very valuable mind, okay? Former White House Ebola response coordinator, of course, in the Obama administration, Ron Klain. Not just theory, practice. They had to do this. Thank you for joining the show again tonight. Let's start off uh, with the president's great defense to what is being done. He says, we test more than anyone else in the world. India's got almost a billion and a half. They don't test as much as we have. Is that the correct answer and proof of purpose of this administration? Well, it may be proof of a lack of purpose of the administration, Chris. The fact that we're six months into this and still really don't have a plan at all. The U.S. is about middle of the pack in terms of per capita testing. Uh, we're pretty low in terms of per capita testing among uh, well-developed and, and wealthy nations. I think the fact if the president wants to compare America's healthcare system to India, I don't think that's really a comparison most Americans want to abide, want to live with. Uh, the bottom line is we have people in this country contracting COVID at record rates, dying at record rates. We're losing Americans uh, here right now at about the same pace we were losing Americans in World War II. We certainly didn't hear FDR tell people just it is what it is. Well, listen to the president here uh, talking about why the numbers uh, work in favor of the argument that he's doing a good job. Yeah, take a look at some of these charts. I'd love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death, yeah, started to go up again. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, We're lower than the world, lower than the lower world. than what is that? Europe. In Take what? Look. In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Can't I do that? You have to go by. You have to go by where. Look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. All right, let's help people understand this, okay? Uh, Here's my simple explanation, and then you get into it from a policy perspective, the reality of this. Um, So the interviewer is saying, as a percent of population, we have too many people dying. The president says, yeah, but not by a percentage of cases. Now, why is one answer better than the other? The simple explanation is, well, we have a great healthcare system. So the fact that we are able to save people that may be saved, may not be saved in other parts of the world because our healthcare system, our clinicians, our first responders are so good, does not excuse the fact that we have so many deaths as a function of our population. Is that a fair assessment? It is, and there are more factors to it. For example, the case mortality rate is higher in some European countries because their populations are older. They have a higher percentage of old people, for example. They also have some denser cities. The bottom line, though, is that that the key number most Americans want to know is how likely am I to die from COVID, right? That's the bottom line. If I'm walking around today in America, what's my chance of dying from COVID? And that statistic, the one that uh, Jonathan Swain at Swan in that interview was pushing, America has one of the worst numbers on planet Earth. You are more likely as an American to die from COVID than you are in almost any other country. Now, you know, part of that, just to just cases, run. new cases of COVID today in Paris, Texas, than in Paris, France. Fair more point. New cases of COVID in the smallest state in the country than in the entire country of Spain. So, you know, we have it very bad here, and comparing our country to other countries shows 
how much the Trump response has failed. And just to be clear, it's not about cherry picking numbers that make us look good, but there are just as many uh, that make us look bad. This is about process and strategy of attack. Um, That's why the testing matters so much to me. We are testing in a way that is so ineffective that we are exposing our most vulnerable, the oldest. uh, And we have too many people who are getting caught by surprise. And this president refuses to acknowledge that. Here's the proof. Here's one right here, United States. You take anyway. the number of cases. Okay. Now look, we're last, meaning we're first. Last? I don't know we what we're first in. Is it what? Take a look okay. again, it's I'll cases. Just... Okay. Um, and we have cases because I mean... of the testing. If you take a look at this other chart, look, this is our testing, I believe. This is the testing, yeah. Yeah, we do more tests. No, wait a minute. Well, don't we get credit for that? And because we do more tests, we have more cases. This matters, okay? Because I can't tell you, Ron, how many people say, will you stop saying that testing is the problem? Yeah, in some places they don't get the results that fast, but we test more than anywhere else in the world, Chris. He can't do better than best. What's the reality? The reality is that about 80% of the tests are taking a week or longer for people to get results. And that makes, it adds up to the testing total, but it's pretty useless. If you've been walking around with COVID for a week, you've probably infected a lot of other people at your workplace or wherever you're hanging out or whatnot. So the, the fact that we're so slow on getting the results back makes the test for all intents and purposes pretty useless. That's the first point. You know, the second point is that we still aren't testing anywhere near enough, you know, because we are a country that's trying to get people back to work. The president talks about everyone going back to school. Kids are gonna go back to school. We're not gonna know if they have the disease or not. We're not gonna know if they're exposed to the disease or not. We're not gonna know if they're bringing it home or not. That's the big testing gap, right? And what's more, even when we test people, we get them positive, we don't have contact tracers to identify who that person's been in contact with so we can isolate cases and keep the disease from spreading. Bottom line is we're you know, eight, nine months into this in total, right? The president still doesn't have a plan. He has charts and statistics and numbers, but where is the plan to get this under control? He is insisting that we test too much. And again, I am all about testing because I think it's all we have. All we have is the ability to figure out who we need to remove from society so they can heal and not make anybody else sick. It's the only prophylaxis we have until we come up with a pillar of vaccine. And he has been pushing this to great political effect, by the way, that the problem is actually how much we test. Here it is. There are those that say you can test too much. You do know that. Who says that? Oh, just read Who? the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the what books. Manuals? Read the books. What books? Now, he went into BS mode to justify it, but uh, let me give him a better defense that he gave himself. Ron, we only have a lot of cases because we're so good at measuring how many people are sick in this country. These other countries stink compared to us. They haven't tested as much. That's the only reason we have more cases. They have a ton more cases than we do. They're just not counting them as well as we are. Okay. So first of all, uh, Chris, they had zero cases in Spain yesterday. Zero. Zero cases in France. Zero. Zero. We had 70,000. Even if we're picking up more because we're testing, 70,000 to zero is not because of testing. That's the first thing. Second thing is, forget the case counts. Forget the, forget all these things. Let's go to people who are dying. We're losing almost 1,000 Americans a day, almost every single day. No matter how you count the tests and the cases and the rates, you know that's a death toll 
that is World War II levels death toll in the United States. And for the president to say that just is what it is, is not presidential leadership. Well, it would be if he was saying, look, the pandemic is what it is. It's going to eat as many of us as it can. That's why we're going to do X is the second part. It's fine that you recognize it. Yeah, that's what it is. That's what this thing does. Great. Let's not be in awe of it. Let's attack it. He doesn't do the second part. Now, uh, this other point that I want to make, this is another of his strong arguments about why he's being unfairly treated here. Important for people to get it. Here it is. I think we've done an incredible job between the ventilators and stopping very infected people from China coming in, meaning putting the ban on China, which, frankly, nobody wanted me to do, practically nobody, because it was very early in January. Uh, Then putting the ban on Europe, not an easy thing to do. When you put a ban on Europe, that's a big thing. We would have uh, probably lost hundreds of thousands of lives more had I not done that. Banning China from coming in. But it was already already in here by the time. It was already here. Like, by the time you banned China, it, it came was, in through Europe. Nobody knew the extent. What is your read on it? Um, he banned well, from China. A lot of people on the political left were against it. He did it. Did he make the right move? Did he make the right move with Europe? Or is the issue timing? Well, I think, it, I think it's a bunch of things. First of all, 44 countries banned travel from China before we did. We were the 45th. He wasn't first. He wasn't early. And the ban wasn't complete. 40,000 people came here from China after he put that ban in place. By the way, he said it was in January, early in January in that interview, it actually took effect in February. So that's just another lie, another mistake. On Europe, uh, the fact of the matter is most of the cases we had on the East Coast, most of the cases there in New York uh, came from Europe, not from China. And he didn't act on that until the middle of March when the disease was already here in large numbers. All these travel restrictions were smart things to do. They should have been done on time. They should have been done more completely. When he imposed the travel restriction on China, I said before Congress that this wasn't a travel ban, it was a travel band-aid. It bought time. The real question, Chris, isn't about the travel restrictions. It's what did he do with the time that the travel restrictions bought? Did he get testing running? Did he get tracing running? Did he get equipment to our hospitals, our healthcare workers? We probably lost about 1,000 healthcare workers in America to COVID because they weren't protected. Did he do any of those things? That's the shame here, that whatever the travel restrictions bought us in terms of time, he squandered with inaction. Here's his defense. Nobody knew what this thing was all about. This has never happened before. 1917, but it was a totally different, it was a flu in that case, okay? But other than 1917, there's never been anything like this. You guys all missed it. Fauci, Burks, all the big brains said it's not going to be a problem here. And then when it started to come here, they said, nah, we're, we're going to be OK. So he's no different than anybody else. Well, of course, that's a lie. Also, Dr. Nancy Messonnier, the senior infectious disease, respiratory disease expert at the Centers for Disease Control, told reporters in a February 25th brie- briefing that the pandemic was coming. It was inevitable that she warned her own family to prepare for a major disruption of U.S. life. The day after she did that, uh, Donald Trump basically uh, prevented her from speaking to the press again. So this isn't just a question of he didn't see it coming. It's people in his own administration told him it was here, told him it was about to explode, and he did everything he could to suppress the truth, to suppress the facts, and to tell people 
it was going to go away, right? It wasn't just that he didn't see it coming, Chris, right? He was out there telling us, oh, it's 15 cases going down to five. It's going to go away. Like a miracle, it's going to go away. It's going to go away by Easter. It's going to go away when it gets warm. It's going to go away in April. It's going to go away at Memorial Day, right? Time and again, he was wrong. And what's more, after it came and it raged, he stood there in May and June and said everyone should reopen everything right away. After we learned the painful lessons of New York and New Jersey, and we, we didn't share those lessons with Florida and Georgia and Texas. Instead, he egged those states on to ignore what had been le learned in the Northeast and to open as quickly and as rapidly as possible, as recklessly as possible. And so now he's he doing saw, it with schools. Coming, and he now he's doing it with schools. But I'll tell you what, Ron, schools are different. Um, you know, I'm a parent. I got three kids at different uh, states of school. And uh, I'm telling you, families are not going to send their kids to schools if they're afraid of them getting sick and bringing it home, uh, this is going to be a problem. It's different than business. And it is going to be a time for act or you're going to see a lot of rogue actors doing it their own way. Ron Klain, thank you for the guidance. Uh, I look forward uh, to using you much on this show to help us understand where we are and where we need to be. God bless. Stay Thanks, healthy. Chris, you and the family. Me. Now, thank you. What happens when government doesn't do what you need it to do? You start doing things on your own for better and worse. My next guests are defying orders to keep their businesses shut down because of COVID, okay? They've already been arrested for reopening their gym in New Jersey, and they are not giving up their fight, even under the threat of losing their violence. That's them breaking into their own place. They're not breaking into somebody else's. They will make the case for why they are in the right next on Primetime. Two New Jersey gym owners were arrested. They were charged uh, with defying the state's COVID restrictions last week. Uh, but that didn't stop them from doing this. Now, just to be clear, they're not breaking into somebody else's place. This is their place. They're kicking in the plywood barricade at the front door of their gym because they want customers to get in. Uh, they say that at the Attilus gym, they have done what they were supposed to do to make it safe the way other businesses that they are similar to in their own estimation did. And that yet they are not allowed to open. All right. This is a court battle. They could go to jail. Now you have the state AG's office there in Jersey recommending a fine of up to 10 grand a day. So this has become about more than business. And I want these men to make the case because they're somewhat representative of something that's happening all across this country. Ian Smith and Frank Trombetti are the owners of Attilish Gym, and they're here now. How you doing, fellas? How are you, Chris? How are you? So, look, the best case they have on you is this is about health. Uh, it's not about not liking exercise. It's not about not liking you. It's about keep, keeping people safe, and you should respect that, and you're not. Your response, one at a time. I would say that actually when this first started, they asked for two weeks. When we first opened up, we gave them two months. They, we gave them until May 18th. At two months, they had no plan. Plain and simple, um, they had no plan. We did. We actually wanted to prove that we could open up safe. They actually say that liquor stores are essential, that actually every place that you can go into Home Depot and Lowe's is essential. 
I disagree with that. Okay, we're all essential. Everybody's essential. And bottom line is this isn't about opening up a gym. They have violated everyone's constitutional rights. We all have the right to make a living. We all have a right to actually do what we want to do as Americans. We are promised liberty. And they have actually put such oppressive restrictions on us that it's just unacceptable to us. And Ian, they say they agree with you. And you have the right, obviously, but you have to balance that right with the risk uh, to people who will come in there, be breathing all over each other in too tight a space. And uh, gym is different than other places because people are getting so exercised. Excuse the pun. It's not about restricting your liberty. It's about keeping people safe. Counter. Uh, I would argue that the, the gym is a place to keep people safe. Um, you know, this is this is a place where people come to to build their immune systems, to build uh, the strength of their body physically on the outside and the inside. This is a place where people come to relieve stress. This is a place where we have uh, soldiers that have served our country that come to uh, deal with their PTSD. This is a place that we have recovering drug addicts who, um, who use this as an outlet. This is a place that saves lives. This is a place that that creates health and fosters health. Um, How do you keep somebody from being sick? Uh, So I come in, I'm sick. Uh, And look, everybody knows that I'm a fitness guy and I have a lot of friends who are in the gym business and a lot of people are in this kind of pain. Uh, and I understand it, and I feel a, sorry for it. You will not be allowed in. When, when you go to a Home Depot, you go to a Lowe's, you go to a liquor store, they don't do anything but make you require masks and stay six feet apart from each other. Right. When you come into our gym, you actually stand in front of a biometric scanner that takes your temperature. You take a disinfected pen. You fill out a health questionnaire, just like you would at a doctor's office. You take that pen, and you put it in a dirty bin so we can actually disinfect it. You're handled a bo- handed a bottle of a disinfectant that is actually from Ecolab that it actually is proven to actually kill the coronavirus in 45 seconds when it's diluted at four ounces per gallon. We actually have an air scrubber in here, which is an auto, it's a mobile decontamination unit that actually circulates approximately 10,000 cubic feet of air per minute through a UV light run by hydroxyl generators that provides 99.9% chemical-free and virus-free air. They actually, their science says that the masks don't work. Plain and simple, it is a safe place to be. It is not a confined space. We actually have 25 foot ceilings in our gym. They have actually taken all gyms and they've actually considered them as one. They are not all equal. I agree. Well, the state says that too, Frank. The the state says that too. Look, I don't agree with you about masks, but that's that's not what we're talking about here. Um, They say, well, no, that's not right. We've allowed outdoor drills. Um, we're allowing one-on-one indoor martial arts, Ian. Uh, we're allowing yoga instruction. And we'll allow you to do whatever you want outside as long as you can follow certain rules. Why is that not good enough? Our governor, our governor has allowed outdoor fighting. You can actually full contact fight outside. I can punch you into something. You, you're an athlete. You actually are one of the tough guys out there. If, if we're actually sparring outside and I punch you in the stomach and I knock your mouthpiece out, you're going to spit in my face. But Governor Murphy says that you can't get COVID that way but because it's outside. But somehow, but somehow walking into a facility that's, that's highly regulated, that has a 15-point safety protocol that goes above and beyond what any business in the state of New Jersey, and I would argue any business in the country has done so far, you can't get, you can get COVID just because what, there's dumbbells in here? It doesn't, it's, it's very inconsistent. Um, so here's my concern. 
I, I think you got a good case. I'll be honest. Uh, I don't think it's uh, one by one. I, I don't think there's malice on the part of the state, obviously, but sometimes they go too far. Here's the problem. You lose here because they are the regulatory authority. And what do you do about $10,000 a day? And what do you do if they want to lock you up um, because they have the law on their side of keeping people safe during a pandemic? First of all, executive orders are not laws. So bottom line is we'll fight this to, to the end. And you actually, we listened to your part that came on before this, and you're, you seem like you're a big numbers guy. And actually, I would like to put some numbers out there for you. Are you aware that actually when this first started, there are 2.1 million people in the United States in long-term care facilities that represent 0.6% of the population. But on July 17th, that 0.6% of the population represented 53.3% of all the deaths that occurred in the United States from COVID. Yes. And that's because the governors are not doing their job. Okay, in, in New Jersey alone, from Ju on June 1st, the percentage of deaths of total deaths in New Jersey in long term care facilities was 42.3 percent. Now, you would think they had control of it because they don't let anybody in the long term care facilities since March 13th when they started Executive Order 104. Okay, 107. I'm sorry. And then when you go back and you would think they go down. So from June 1st, the actual total number of percentage of deaths was 42.3%. Now, fast forward to June 23rd. On June 23rd, the percentage of total deaths in uh -oh. Jersey, oh, good. the other states, okay? The percentage of deaths from long-term care facilities rose to 49.7%. And I brought to the media's attention that for 23 straight days, more people died out of the 70,000 residents in New Jersey that live in long-term care facilities than the 9 million people that he calls the, the knuckleheads, okay? We're not doing what we're supposed to do, okay? And then that day on June 23rd, he actually he would always admit how many people died in long-term care facilities, right. how many people died in the, in the general population. On June 23rd, it peaked with 57 total deaths in New Jersey. Blessed souls that he says, right. God help them. Okay, 50 of them died in long-term care facilities, seven out of the other 9 million people in general population. But – he yeah, never but Frank, I don't think it's it. just about. And you know what? There's a task about, force. They, no, there's one more thing. There's a task force. There, the, right. the actual U.S. Army has a JTF 57 COVID 19 task force that was disassembled on June 24th. That task force job was inside of the long term care facilities in the state of New Jersey to document all new cases and document all of the deaths. The state of New Jersey has not updated any of their deaths in long term care facilities since they disassembled that on June 24th. Frank, I think Look it's it a. Up. That's the fact. I'm Frank. I am not questioning your numbers. numbers, guy. That's the facts. Frank, I'm so not the questioning the bottom, bottom line. Hold on a second, this, guys. I, I hear you about. We are being blamed. I hear we you about it, but no, I'm not blaming you just the way that you are suggesting. Let me just let me just no, balance not, it. No, not out. you. I'm talking, not you. I'm talking about we're, we're being villainized as small businesses in general that we're responsible for this spread, but over 50 percent of the deaths are coming from places that are supposed to be I, under governors. I understand, and there's no question, Frank. Frank, give me a chance. Give me a chance, Frank. We have had 15,009 visits to our facility, zero positive cases. Nobody six. 
We will actually have the rapid. You you just said something about the rapid test. Yeah. I will have 250 rapid tests available to be administered by a nurse on Thursday. Rapid Who tests are great. Has that? I don't know. Who else? Has that? I don't know. Look, I'm saying I think you guys have a good case. I get their general suspicion of places where you're going to be congested and people are going to be breathing all over each other. But one size doesn't always fit all. Rapid tests with quick turnaround, a point of service turnaround would be very important. What you're saying about long-term care facilities, I'm not questioning it. We did the wrong job by the most vulnerable people. And even though obviously the oldest and the most fragile will die the most in a situation like this, it doesn't mean you did it the right way. The only thing so I would caution you about. You're knocking Trump because of the total numbers. I'm not you knocking, knocking, I'm not, Trump, I'm because knocking Trump because he's not doing all the percent of the Frank. deaths. 53.3% of the deaths from 0.6% of the population. Frank. Bottom line, that's a fucking stat that nobody's talking about. Frank, watch your, watch your mouth. We're on television. But Sorry, th- sir. Don't Sorry. worry about it. Don't worry about it. That, th- I get the passion. What I'm saying is this. One, death isn't the only metric. I'm not blaming the president for the pandemic. I'm not blaming the president when people die, except there's a lot more they could be doing. If the government were doing what you're doing in your gym, we'd be in a very different place. If they were killing well, Chris, themselves to figure out the best way to test, okay. we'd be in a different place. I'm not blaming you uh, for that kind of stuff. It's not about the president. No, but we're, we're being blamed by the governor for being reckless when we're doing more than what he does in long-term care facilities. I get your argument. People. I get your the, argument, the and I think that you should have a fair hearing. It's out of control. It's out of control. It's all, all that happens is conclusion, uh, conclusionary statements with no science and data to back up that our gym or any gym or any small business for that matter is more responsible for deaths and the spread of COVID than any other I don't one. think, the, all I'll say, Ian, I don't think death is the right metric because it's about, look, obviously death matters most, right? We're human Cases beings. Cases aren't the right metric? No, no. What is death. the right metric? Oh, Healthy people Frank, are not dying. Frank, death. Healthy well, that's people not true. are not dying. That's, that's not true. I right? lost my mother from this. I, and I'm very, I lost my I'm very sorry for that. In the hospital. I'm very You're sorry for that. You're barking up the wrong tree. I'm not barking up any tree. My mother got it in the hospital. Frank. My mother got it in the hospital where they're supposed to protect. I'm very sorry okay. about that. So and I'm sorry told, she got it. I'm sorry she succumbed to it. But it ju- I'm not attacking you for it. I'm saying that death isn't the only way to measure the risk. I'm very sorry about you losing your mother, Frank. And, you know, I'm sure you can understand that. I don't want to blame the, the anybody the for anybody doing something wrong. I'm saying getting life. sick is what they're worried about. Not that you're going to kill people, but that. No they're, no, they're worried about deaths. They're worried about death. Bottom line is it's like the flu. If you take that, if you take that 0.6 percent of the population that is responsible for 53.3 percent of the deaths, this is a mild flu. No, they, but there are, are a lot more cases, Frank. Down. There are a lot more cases and people are getting more sick and different people are getting sick than get sick with the flu. And we're getting a lot of weird after effects with this. We've got to take it seriously, but that doesn't change we, the fact Chris, that you guys believe, may be doing the right things to keep is, people safe. It is important. It is important to take very seriously. And I think that what needs to happen is government needs to start working with the people in order to resume life while taking things I seriously. Agree. When we... 
When we, when we opened back up in May, we opened very publicly for a reason because there was no plan present. And we decided that we were going to put forth a model to work with government. To this day, we've had no outreach from government, even though our plan has been proven to be pretty effective. Is it perfect? No. But you would have thought by now that the New Jersey government would reach out and say, hey, let me send a health official down there and let's talk about this. Let's get let's get back on track. I don't disagree no, with that either. I would say this. Though, shut up and listen, listen to my executive orders. And if you dare defy them, you will be punished well, and you will be financially. And obviously and, and obviously that's not that's not how the administration of justice should work. And you should have the chance to make your case. I just don't think it should have to go that far. I don't want to see you guys agree, wind up in court to do this. But you're also allowing yourselves to be a little politicized on this, Frank. I didn't mention I didn't mention the president. It has nothing to do with the president. I am the least political person you ever. You you brought it up in this interview and it had no place in it. So that wasn't on me. That's on you, Frank. I'm just saying, be careful, because if you get seen as a political actor, then you're going to get treated as a political combatant. And I don't know that you want that's okay, Hey, Chris. Chris, that's okay with me because the people that have known me from my entire life, I'm 51 years old, know that I never had a political bone in my body. I couldn't give two craps about politics. I thought blue states were, were bordered by water and red states weren't. That's simple. Okay, <laughs> bottom line is, bottom line, bottom line is, actually true. and that is true. Everybody that knows me, and I'm I hear you, but Frank, public, look. Okay, I made my house a gla- in the glass, and you guys haven't found anything to, to come after me with. Frank, okay, bottom I'm, line ju- is, I'm covering they, it because I think it's indicative of what's happened in a lot of places in the country. I'm going to stay on your story. You guys are welcome back here to let me know what the next iteration is. It's not about red or blue for me. It's about what's right for people to get healthy and get businesses open and live their lives. So you got an opportunity here when you want it. All right. And I'm really sorry about your mother, Frank. I'm so sorry that you lost your mom. All right. Ian Smith and Frank Trombetti. Now, to be honest, if they want to make it political, we can in just this one way. If we had the rapid testing in this country that they have in the UK, I don't think that Trombetti and Smith have the problem at Attila's gym that they have in Jersey. Why? Because we'd have a different cultural reality about how quickly we can detect whether or not somebody has this and we have to move them out of the population. 90 minutes. It would fix a lot of things and keep us safer than we are today. William Shaftner, scientist, doctor, what does he think? Next. Now, those guys are characters, but they represent something that's happening with a lot of businesses around this country. So let's bring in Dr. William Schaffner back with us tonight. I have to tell you, Doc, um, I agree with the one size shouldn't fit all. And I agree that a little bit of the preliminary let's shut everything down uh, wound up catching the good and the bad. Uh, in terms of its effect and reopening, I understand the frustration of people saying, so I can kickbox outside, but I can't have anybody inside, even though they're not going to be touching each other. I can do, uh, you know, yoga or I can do one on one training, but I can't have people 15 people uh, feet away from each other with nobody up on them. I get their frustrations. What is your take? I think that their frustration is understandable and it's emblematic of so many people who uh, as individuals are going out, not wearing masks, not obeying social distancing. They don't really understand it. And sure, there are inconsistencies uh, because one size does not fit all, but in emergent matters, we have one size. And that's the way uh, we have to implement uh, kind of large scale public health interventions 
in order to interrupt the transmission of this virus. Understood. And Health it, has to come first. But, you know, look, the problem for the state is they've made exceptions to the rules and changes within that same genre of business. And then it starts to get a little bit more imbalanced in terms of what's fair, what isn't. But when you think about a gym, would you go to a gym? And if not, why? I wouldn't go to a gym, but then I haven't gone hardly anywhere except briefly to the supermarket. And uh, I go to my office, but I'm totally enclosed while I'm there. I'm away from everyone else. So my contact with other people has been really marginal and very, very rare now for several months. So those guys say and, they're better. You're better off in their gym than in the supermarket. Everybody's touching the food. They don't wear the gloves. You don't know who's sick and who isn't. Uh, the ventilation system's not as good. Uh, the people working there don't clean the same way that they do because they don't have to. Uh, their gym is cleaner than even a supermarket. How much does it matter how a place approaches its protocols? Of course, it, matter, it matters a great deal. And it sounds as though these fellows have a good case. I, I, I'm no attorney, right. but their constitutional case sounds terribly weak. But I get where they're coming from as human beings and as people who are trying to run their operation in the best possible way. I'll take exactly what they say at face value. They're in a difficult situation. It sounds to me as though the health department hasn't had a reasonable conversation with them either. Right. And also, look, they, they told us early on, I don't know if this is still true, Doc, you can tell, um, tell me this now, that you don't get it through sweat. Uh, this virus doesn't transmit through sweat. Do we still believe that? I don't know anything particular about sweat, but that's something that can be taken care of in a circumstance like that by disinfection and good hand hygiene, right? We still think that this virus is transmitted through close personal contact over a prolonged period of time indoors. That's the major way it's transmitted. Mm. We think now also that inanimate surfaces play a role, probably not as important as we thought initially. And we're also talking about airborne transmission, that is transmission at a distance, probably also happens on occasion, not very important. It's still close in contact in a prolonged period of time in an enclosed space is where most of the transmission occurs. That's the highway of transmission. And the, over the others are kind of side streets. The overriding factor that you've mentioned many times, doctor, but it deserves to be repeated, is if we had better, quick, or what we call rapid testing and turnaround of results, we would be in a different place with our schools, with our gyms, with our businesses, with our reality, because we would know in almost real time who we have to take care of and who we don't. And that would free up a lot of activity that now we just don't know enough to be safe with. Dr. Schaffner, thank you. We got to continue talking sense because the only way we'll get where we need to be. Thank you, doctor. Nice. We'll be right back. When young Americans experience the breathtaking beauty of the Grand Canyon, when their eyes widen in amazement as Old Faithful bursts into the sky, when they gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias, their love of country grows stronger, and they know that every American has truly a duty to preserve this wondrous inheritance.
Yo Semites. You know, it's that park where only Jewish people are. Historian Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, joins me right now, personal favorite of mine. Welcome to Primetime. Good to see you. I'm glad to be with you, Chris. Um, you and I uh, we should take a trip sometime to the Yosemite Park uh, so we can visit with all of our Jewish friends who were there. Look, it's not about his ignorance of not understanding the word. Uh, he would later say nothing like this since Roosevelt. This president loves to compare himself to the greats, but that's not really his job. It's yours. What do you see in this? Well, I think that's true. It's not the sitting president's responsibility, or should it be a contest between him and the other presidents? It's true the Great Outdoors Act is a good thing to do, to, to make these deteriorating parks get repaired, to give a lot of jobs. But if you wanted to make a comparison, Teddy Roosevelt is the one that set aside 200 million of these parks in the first place, that made Grand Canyon safe from the protection of mining interests that wanted to go there. The important thing is that Teddy stimulated a movement. He was part of a conservation movement. That was the legacy he left behind. And almost all the changes that have taken place in our society that really, really matter are when there's an outside movement. Is it the civil rights movement under that LBJ was able to be part of? Was it the anti-slavery movement that was part of Abraham Lincoln? The women's movement, the gay rights movement? When they connect to people in power, that's when something happens. So that's what we should be looking for. That's the moment we're at right now as a possible movement out there with the Black Lives Movement, and we need the leadership. We could really compare, I think, um, Mr. Trump to FDR. I mean, because that's, that's the really important comparison that so far he hasn't made. Right, about seeing the challenge and what you do with uh, it in that moment. Interestingly, the Great Amer American Outdoors Act that he was signing uh, was not just a bipartisan bill, uh, but it was introduced by John Lewis. Uh, a man he has gone out of his way to disparage as if it were equal that, well, Lewis didn't come to my inauguration, so I'm not going to his funeral. Um, the idea of embracing bigger movements. The president spoke about that in a way. I want to play it. I did more for the black community than anybody with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln, whether you like it or not, people say, oh, that's you really you, you believe you did more than Lyndon Johnson, who passed the Civil I Rights Act? I think I Act. did, yeah. How? Because I How got criminal did justice you do? reform done. I got prison reform. Lyndon Johnson. I've done things. I've done, well. He passed the ask, Civil Rights ask, Act. How has it worked out? If you take a look at what Lyndon Johnson did. You think the Civil Rights Act was a mistake? How has it worked out? Help me with that. Whoa. <laughs> Well, how has it worked out? The South was legally desegregated. A Voting Rights Act provided the vote to millions of Americans. But the incredible thing is that Lyndon Johnson would be the first one in that voting rights speech and his civil rights work to say the heroes of those acts were, were the people in the civil rights movement. And when he embraced it and he asked for civil rights and he asked for voting rights, it was because it was not just good for black Americans, not just good for northern or southern Americans, it was good for all of America to do this thing. When Abraham Lincoln was called a liberator because of Emancipation Proclamation, he said, no, don't call me that. It was the anti-slavery movement and the Union soldiers that did it all. I was an instrument. Well, he was far more than an instrument because he gave voice and he gave leadership at that time to what had to be done. But it's that connection between the outside, and John Lewis is emblematic of that outside movement. And to not be able to say he was a great man 
when we've understood what he did on that bridge, that bridge that then produced the great speech that LBJ gave, on the, where he embraced the, the anthem of the civil rights movement, we shall overcome. It's, it's incomprehensible to me to not understand who he was and what he represented. What will be interesting is how people like you, Doris, and other historians uh, define what Trump did in the moment of this pandemic. Uh, every president who has a crisis on their watch becomes defined on how they handle it. And you and I have never seen someone deny the existence of a crisis and push uh, an attitude of an action the way this one has. It'll be interesting to see how it's remembered, and it may get written sooner than later. Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you for your perspective. You're always welcome on the show. It's a big treat. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Take care. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. We are two hours this week. I'm in for D. Lemon. This president went from everything's all under control to this is all going to disappear to 156,000 plus dead. Well, it is what it is. Right security. Now, I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha it is what it is. It is. It is what it is. It is a pandemic that you are not doing enough about on purpose. In action, on purpose. By now, we know that this is happening because it is what it is, and he is who he, he is. And that is somebody who won't admit that he screwed up, who won't say that now he has to do it differently. He doesn't want to address the pandemic because he warned that it was going to go away. Don't worry about it. And then what did he say? Well, it's going to get worse before it got better. So what are you going to do about it? Nothing. And instead of acting, he is distracting. Listen. We are continuing to monitor and monitor particular hot spots across the south, southwest, and the west. And we're seeing indications that our strong mitigation efforts are working very well, actually. Look, he's reading it because he doesn't know what he's talking about. And that suggestion is just wrong. It is at odds with reality. And for the reality, here's Erica Hill. Our national response to this pandemic should be a national embarrassment. It's under control as much as you can control it. The data that actually comes from the White House Task Force backs up exactly what Dr. Burke said. There is uncontrolled spread in over 32 states in the country. Six months into this pandemic, the virus is not under control, despite the president's claims. Cases surging in southern Illinois. The data can tell you if you're winning or losing against the virus. Unfortunately, right now, the virus is winning in Jackson County. Early gains giving way to spikes in San Francisco. People pretty much filing complacency. They uh, weren't scared anymore of what was going on. And while there are some bright spots, California's positivity rate is declining, and 14 states, including Arizona and Florida, are seeing a dip in new cases over the past week. Of the 28 states in yellow, those holding steady, many are plateauing at a very high level. I think these new levels are going to make what we've had already seem like, boy, I wish we were back in the old days. 
Deaths, which lag by at least two to four weeks, are rising in these 27 states. Arkansas and West Virginia seeing record hospitalizations. Atlanta's Georgia World Congress Center, now a surge hospital, again. It saddens me that we are we are still headed in the wrong direction so many months after we had an opportunity to get on the other side of COVID-19. In Georgia's largest school district, 260 employees can't work because they've either tested positive or been exposed to the virus. Two new studies suggest testing and contact tracing still lacking are the key to reopening schools. We don't want to endanger one student, one teacher, one support professional, one community member. Teachers in one Phoenix district calling on the governor to issue statewide safety mandates as Arizona's top education official warns it's unlikely any school in that state will be able to reopen safely for in-person or hybrid learning. If you just look at the facts, the U.S. has about 4% of the world's population and about a quarter of the cases, 25% of the cases. We definitely have a problem here in the U.S. Chris, something else to think about. Goldman Sachs economists are pointing to parents as the next group of workers who could stand to lose their jobs, noting that single parents, those with young children at home, and parents who can't work from home are most at risk to not be able to work. And pre-pandemic, we should point out, about a third of the U.S. workforce had children at home. Chris? Mm. Erica, very important perspective. Thank you very much. We're in a jam, right? So many of the people who watch this show are parents. And, you know, one of the bonds we have is that, you know, I'm living it the same way you are. I don't know what I'm going to do with my kids. I don't know what I'm going to do. I know that the schools are trying to figure out I don't like the hybrid model. Why? I see it as the worst of both worlds. I get that we all want our kids back in school. So do I. Find a safe way to do it. Find the space. Find a way to do it safely and find a way to get the rapid tests. And then I'll put my kids in the school. But why would I want my kids in the school so that they can be exposed to a group setting where they don't really know who's sick and who isn't? And I don't buy this fever thing either. Why? Well, a lot of things can give you a fever. You can have COVID and not have a fever. This no smell, no taste thing. That's a good little piece of science that they're developing that that helps us know. But so I'm going to send them there. I'm going to send her there. They're going to be exposed. They're going to come home. Now, I can't have my mother around. Now, I got to worry about my in-laws. And then I still have to deal with my wife not being able to do what she wants to do work-wise, because I get it easy, right? I'm lucky because I, I, I have to come here and do this. But we're still going to have the kids at home and have to play that Zoom BS again, where they, they won't let you see the lesson, but you got to help the kid with the plan and the kid doesn't know what they're doing. And what if your kid's not a self-starter, which is like 90% of our kids? All of this could have been avoided and still could be avoided if this president would put his arms around the problem instead of pushing it away and covering his eyes. Get us the rapid tests. Do what the UK did. Instead, we get this. The figure I look at is death. And death is going up now. Okay, no, and it's no. a thousand a day. If you look at death. Yeah, it's going up look, again. Let's look. Daily death. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd okay? love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death. Yeah. Per, started to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world? lower than what is that? Europe. In what? In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. 
oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the US is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't you can't do that. You have Why to go, can't I do that? You have to go by you have to go by where look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. The cases Why are not dead. as a proportion when of population? We have somebody, what it says is when you have somebody that yeah. has it, where there's a case, oh, okay. the people that live sure. from oh. those cases. It's surely a relevant statistic to say if the US has X population and X percentage of death of that population no, versus South Korea. No, you have to Korea. go by the cases. Well, look at South Korea, if, for example. 51 million population, 300 deaths. It's like, it's you, crazy you compared to know that. I do, it's you on the, don't know it's, that. Don't, you think they're faking their statistics, uh, South Korea, I, an I advanced country? Let's bring in Dr. Ashish Jha, director of the Harvard Global Health Institute. Look, I'm not going to burden you with the politics. Here's the problem, okay, is that he is spending time distracting from the reality instead of addressing it. I don't even get the political play. I know, Ashish, this isn't your, your deal, but he's got time to put his arms around this and get us where the UK is right now with testing, which creates a solution for the angry gym owners who are on the show, uh, a solution for the angry parents like me who don't want to send my kids back this way and hate this hybrid model. That's like the worst of both, in my opinion. Um, what is the reality of he says today, you know, we played this game yesterday. I want to play it again. Um, yeah, we want to get to where the UK is. How big a deal is it? How big a deal is what the UK is doing? How big a deal uh, is it for us to get where they are? Yeah, so Chris, here's the, here's the story. Uh, and, and again, thank you for having me back on. Always. Look, we are, we are in... Um, trouble, not just because we haven't built the testing infrastructure we need, but we also don't have a serious federal response anymore. Uh, testing is actually falling in half the states across the country. We're, we're worse off now than we were two weeks ago. Um, the only piece of good news in all of this is that today, seven state governors basically announced uh, that they are going to go it alone. They're going to go without the federal government and they're going to go through their own testing and build up their own testing infrastructure. And I think states are basically giving up at this point on the What does it government. do to have seven of them bond together? Why is that, why is that helpful? Well, it's helpful because that, uh, with seven of them coming together, you start getting the kind of market size you need to be able to go to companies and say, look, if you ramp up and we can help you ramp up, we will be here to purchase your product. This is what the federal government should have done four months ago. They could have gone to companies and said, build up your things and we will pay for it. They didn't. And now the states are doing it. We're going to have, I think, other st states join in. And states now, is it are fair to say, this? Ashish, that's the way it should have always been and the blame isn't on the president or the federal government, it's on the states for not figuring this out sooner? No, there are two reasons why we should have gone with a federal response first. And I guess you could argue the states maybe should have just given up on the federal government a little earlier. But look, the money sits with the with the federal government. They have the purse. They also have a bunch of powers that states don't. Right. They have the the DPA, the Defense Production Act. And so while states can do this, I think everybody acknowledges this is plan B. This is the second best choice. Mm. I think at this point, it's really incontrovertible that like the ideal would have been the federal government doing it. They couldn't or they didn't. So now the states are pulling it in. Let's talk brother to brother for a second here uh, with schools. 
I yeah. can't in good conscience. Now, look, it's not my job to do this anyway, but, you know, we become proxies sometimes. They see me talking to people like you who know what they're talking about, and they think that somehow by osmosis I may know something. Um, I can't tell people in good conscience to send their kids back to school. I don't even know if I'm going to do it. This hybrid thing is, it sounds stupid to me uh, that, well, we'll only put them there sometimes. Uh, to me, it's like, so you're only going to put my kid's hand in fire sometimes? Um, if they're exposed to a classroom and you can't count cases, then whether it's one week a month or four weeks a month, it's too much. And obviously at home has all these logistical issues and problems that are academic. Let's keep that away. That's not public health per se. But, you know, I guess it's better than going every week in terms of exposure. But at the same day, don't you have the same problem, Ashish, that if you can't count cases, then you're not ready to have kids in those places? Yeah, so I am a big believer in testing in schools as one of the ways of, of counting cases, as you say, and of, of uh, offering another layer of protection. They say they can't get the tests that give you the quick response, and they can't get the lab access to get quick turnaround. Yeah, so there are two things here. One is, first of all, I, and also schools don't have the money. So Congress has got to put in the money for schools to do this. And then, yeah, like, again, it would have been helpful if the federal government had ramped up uh, these rapid tests. You know, the, the White House gets a daily test with 15-minute turnaround. Can you imagine if our kids were just as important as uh, the folks who visit the White House? Uh, if we had done the things to get to rapid testing in America's schools, we could open now. My argument is, if it's not safe to open now, start online work really, really hard to build up the capacity to do rapid testing when it becomes available, when you've got case numbers low in your community, then go to in-person teaching. It's not my ideal choice, but it is better than risking it when, when it's not ready and it's better than giving up altogether. So that's been my suggestion and advice uh, to school superintendents and mayors across the country. Because that's what they say to you, right, is we can't do the testing, we're afraid. Yeah, and, and that they don't have really space. They talk square footage, too. But I got to tell you, that bothers me also, Ashish. And this is a little bit of a dovetail into your area and politics. You know, then you, you know this already. But, you know, in 1918, they did a better job at teaching kids in outdoor spaces, putting up tents, doing out. They did that with the courts. We haven't done any of that. We haven't innovated anything here. Yeah, why? I, I just feel, why? Just because I feel like he, well, there are two reasons. One is, first of all, I think we have way over politicized this. I think there are too many politicians starting from the top who have made this a political issue. Uh, I think that's really frustrating to me. Um, the second is I do think people are not being creative enough. And I've been saying to folks, like, look at your public libraries. Use that as space. Movie look theaters, at other municipal buildings. churches, Use armories, them. community centers. N nobody's exactly. using any of them. Right. Go outside. Look, in, in much of the country, September, October, you can do it outside, maybe with space heaters even in November. But the point, point is you can be outside for a good chunk of the fall. Let's do that. We know that's safer. But it will require real leadership. If it's not coming from the federal government, it's going to, it's going to have to come from states, from governors. And then mayors and, and school superintendents are going to have to do it. Uh, again, they're not used to fighting a pandemic, um, but they will have to learn how to do this. And there are a lot of us in the public health world who are ready to help. We want to help schools. We want to help teachers. We want to help school superintendents figure this out and, and get going. Weak people make hard times. Uh, and that's where we are right now. We are not thinking. We're not thinking like some people who want to survive, who want to get ahead of this, who want to beat it. Uh, and it really is going to be the tale of this administration and really this period in our history. Dr. Ashish Jha, thanks for being along for the ride. And thanks for keeping us straight on what the possibilities are. Thanks, Chris. All right. Be well. So, look, it matters that the president 
says things about historical figures, about other presidents, about uh, institutions that changed our society, like the Civil Rights Act, it matters because it is a window into what he is about as a person. You know how he says the pandemic is what it is? He's right. Hold on. And he is who he is. He trashed John Lewis again. Why? A week after his funeral. Trashed LBJ. He diminished the significance of the Civil Rights Act. He said, oh yeah, how'd that work out? What? And he dismissed the wildly unequal numbers of black people killed by police all in one interview. So what does that interview mean to somebody who is an advocate and an ardent supporter and implementer of the Black Lives Matter movement? Angela Rye. I'm going to help her get her jaw back off the floor into her face so she can speak. Next. that. President Trump says he's done more than any other president for black Americans, all while downplaying the civil rights legacy of the late John Lewis. Here's what he told Axios's Jonathan Swan about the congressman. How do you think history will remember John Lewis? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know John Lewis. Uh, He chose not to come to my uh, uh, inauguration. Uh, he chose, uh, I, I don't, uh, I never met John Lewis, actually, I don't believe. Do you find him impressive? Uh, I can't say one way or the other. I find a lot of people impressive. I find many people not impressive, but no, but I didn't Do go. you find his story he impressive? Come, he didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my State of the Union speeches, and that's okay. That's his right. And Again, nobody has done more right. for but, but back black to, Americans than I have. I understand. He should have come. But back, I think he made a big mistake. But, but, I think ta- he but taking come. your relationship with him out of it, do you find his story impressive, what he's done for this country? He was a person that devoted a lot of energy and a lot of heart to civil rights, but there were many others also. Let's bring in Angela Rye. It's good to have you on primetime. Um, what Hi, is, Christ. Thanks to be here, Chris. What do you hear in his words, not so much about John Lewis, but the significance? Well, I hear someone who doesn't know um, about John Lewis. I hear someone who has not done any research, has no education about John Lewis's tremendous contribution to civil rights and beyond. After John Lewis crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he stepped into a robust and lifelong career in legislative advocacy and public service, um, something that Donald Trump can certainly learn from. I'm sure it is convenient for him to erase the legacy of John Lewis because that would mean that he would have to acknowledge um, the ways in which Republicans have um, engaged in voter suppression and he's benefited from it, right? Mm. Um, it would mean that he would have to acknowledge the fact that even though HR1 and HR4 were passed in the House this year, Um, that the Senate has been uh, negligent in taking up either legislative measure that would make elections fair and safe in this country. So it is not um, in Donald Trump's uh, interest to acknowledge the lifelong legacy um, and history of John Lewis. And I also think um, it's significantly unfortunate, um, given the fact that we just lost this giant of a man and Donald Trump is stuck on whether or not somebody attended his inauguration, four years ago. By, by the way, we can both imagine him saying the same thing about Dr. King if he were alive. 
uh, during Trump's Absolutely. era. Absolutely. That if Dr. King said something about Trump that Trump didn't like, he wouldn't care what he was about. He'd say, this That's guy exactly this guy's right. meaningless. That's who he is. If you're good to him, you're good. If you're bad to him, you're bad. There is no other context. We're just not used to that in someone who is a leader of the free world. That's why he can say, Civil Rights Act, Angela, how'd that work out? I did more with yeah. bail reform than that. And, you know, Chris, I think that the, the, the trouble here is the one thing I appreciate the fact is we know where Donald Trump stands and that's nowhere. Um, unfortunately, um, with some of the Republicans, they have paid a lot of lip service since uh, Congressman Lewis's death. They've talked about how much of a hero he was. But if they, he was so much of a hero to them and a leader to them, they should be following suit and ensuring these same voter protections. Donald Trump can create whatever revisionist history he wants to about the legacy and all that he thinks he's done for black people, but the facts are not on his side. So it's up and up to an incumbent upon the American public to educate ourselves about the truth of what is coming out of his mouth. And it's not much. Mm. And on policing, which is obviously going to be relevant uh, in this election, obviously the pandemic is overcoming everything, but that is going to be a big undercurrent of people's feelings about the state of play in America. Here's what he said about policing. Do you believe, though, Mr. President, that many police treat black people differently from white people? Well, I hope not. I hope not. It's certainly the... the uh, You've seen the statistics. The knee on the neck was a disgrace, okay? Yeah. It was a disgrace. I'm talking about what does systemic racism mean to you? Uh, I hope the answer to that question is no. Do I... Does anybody really answer that question accurately? But what does about not really hope? Know? What about analysis? What's your cold hearted? Uh, I have view seen of it? where there is a difference, and I don't want there to be a difference. I don't like that there would be a difference. But with that being said, why do you think black men are two and a half times white people? I know, but why do you think black in men in a larger number in, in quantities have killed but, white people? But why do you think black men are two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white? Uh, men? That I don't know, but uh, why? I don't, why do I don't like it. Is that enough? Of course, it's not enough. And I think, again, it goes right to the heart of what we're talking about here, which is where Donald Trump sits. Donald Trump is the chief executive, the commander in chief, right? The leader of the free world. He doesn't have to not like something, Chris. He's not a pundit on air, right? This is someone who can use the power of the executive. Um, uh, President Obama used to say, with the power of the pen, right? He can use the power of the pen and change it. He can engage in ex executive action, executive order, sign legislation. He could urge the Senate right now to pass justice and policing. Instead, he pulled out this watered-down version of an executive order after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which, by the way, he has yet to speak to. He's not done anything meaningful in this area. Yes, I give him credit for the First Step Act, but it's time to see some changes after the first step. The first step is not what's going to save black lives in this country, right? So he doesn't have to like it. It's, by the way, it's three times more likely to be killed. Black men are three times more likely to be killed than white people. And I think that if he really doesn't like it, then he needs to prove it with executive action and with signing some legislation into law that will actually save mm -hmm. lives. You are what you do, not what you say. Angela Rye, you are right to draw yeah. that. Uh, and in fact, it happens to be the topic of my life lesson tonight. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank be you, well. Chris. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, we have some election results that are going on in a couple of key races. We're going to give you that right after this.
President Trump, don't vote by mail. It's all fraud. It'll be the most fraud-ridden election in history. President Trump, if you're in Florida, you should vote by mail. Seriously. He tweeted, whether you call it vote by mail or absentee voting, in Florida, the election system is safe and secure. The home of the hanging chad. So in Florida, I encourage all to request a ballot and vote by mail. Why the change? Let's go to the briefing room. I wanted to ask you uh, first about uh, what you tweeted out earlier today in regards to Florida uh, and your comfortableness as it relates to mail-in ballots yeah. for Florida. Okay, I'm glad you asked you. Why does that apply to Florida and it doesn't apply to mail-in balloting across the country? So Florida's got a great Republican government. 20 states with Republican governors allow for voting by mail with no excuse, okay? Only Florida gets his thumbs up. I wonder why. We have the Wizard of Odds, Harry Enten, here to break it down. What is the answer, Wiz? <laughs> the, the answer is that he's losing in Florida. I mean, that I think is the easiest answer to the question, right? I mean, take a look at the latest average of polls. He's down by six points. Biden's at 50%. So he's losing and he feels like he needs to shake things up. This is always what it is with the president, right? He's transactional. He sees he's losing. He wants to change up the game. How important is Florida? Can he win without it? I would be very difficult. I mean, you go back over the last 96 years, and this, I think, is the key number. Only twice in the last 96 years has the winner of the election not won Florida, 1960 and 1992. And in fact, for a Republican, no Republican since Calvin Coolidge in 1924 has won the presidency without winning Florida. So while there are certainly universes in which Trump can win without winning Florida, they are very, very minute. What happened in 92 that would happen to ha have to happen this time uh, for it to vote against Trump and yet he wins? I mean, look, obviously, if Trump were able to maintain that base in the Midwest, right, in those Great Lake states. If he won Pennsylvania, he won Michigan, he won Wisconsin. In that case, if everything else stayed the same from the 2016 map, he could lose Florida and win. That's the universe in which it happens. But it's not really a real probable universe for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that the president is actually polling poorer in the upper Midwest in those Great Lake battleground states than he is right now currently in Florida. Another aspect here is uh, that mail-in requests are somewhat indicative. You note here that what we're seeing in Florida is that so far Democrats are jumping out to a huge advantage in mail ballot requests. Um, that is why he was bashing the idea of being able to vote this way, but also probably why he's now asking his own people to do it. That's exactly right. I mean, the Republicans were so worrying down there over this developing trend Right now, take a look at the margin in the request between Democrats and Republicans. It's nearing 600,000 voters. Back in 2016, the number of requests for the 2016 general election was basically even. So President Trump is seeing this math, is seeing the polls that show him down, and obviously recognizes that something needs to change. And that, to me, is the most logical explanation why all of a sudden vote by mail or absentee, any of that, all of a sudden is acceptable to him in Florida while it's not acceptable apparently to him anywhere else. But the problem is, is that he caused his own problem 
because you're seeing in the numbers that his own people are less likely to want to vote by mail because he's told them not to vote by mail. That's exactly correct. President Trump has caused this problem, and he hasn't just caused it in Florida, Chris. This, I think, is what's so key, is he's caused it nationally. If you look at the polls right now and you say, okay, how are you going to vote? Are you going to vote in person, or would you prefer to vote absentee or by mail? What you see currently in the polls nationally right now is that Democrats overwhelmingly, 51% of them in a recent ABC News Washington Post poll, said that they wanted to vote by mail versus just 20% of Republicans. That is a huge margin and much different than what we saw in 2016 when that margin didn't exist. It's very clear that Republican voters have been listening to President Trump and therefore they don't want to vote by mail. And you know what? Banking votes before Election Day, especially in a pandemic that's unpredictable, puts Democrats at an advantage. Especially at a time when he hasn't gotten any kind of game together on the pandemic. When this starts in September, that early voting, those will be people who are voting with kids who haven't gone back to school, the economy's not opening, they're not doing the testing, they're seeing it in the UK is better. Other countries are gonna echo that kind of acceleration and we may not, that's a bad time to have voting, that's when mail-in voting may make a difference. Harry Anton, thank you. Uh, so from context to the urgency of consequence here, breaking news on this election in parts of our country, okay? A primary race is getting national attention. You're gonna recognize one of the names even if you don't live there. Let's bring in Jessica Dean. Thank you for joining us tonight. What is the news out of Kansas? Well, Chris, we can report tonight that Roger Marshall has defeated Chris Kobach there in Kansas. You mentioned that people might be familiar with one of these names. Chris Kobach, of course, a hardliner, a Trump ally uh, for a while now. And this really was an interesting race that got uh, national attention because it really illustrates a divide within the Republican Party that we have seen playing out. This was kind of a, a microcosm of that. And what happened was uh, a lot of the establishment getting behind Marshall really believed believing that he was the one uh, that could could win this Senate seat coming up in the fall. But uh, Chris Kobach, of course, getting in the race as well. It was a, a large race, a big field. Uh, and President Trump failing to endorse in this race, really kind of staying back. A Republican establishment had hoped that President Trump would weigh in for Marshall. They believed that was their best choice uh, and their best chance of keeping that Senate seat. But President Trump, we had reporting uh, from earlier in the cycle that he certainly he didn't want to weigh in on this uh, because uh, Marshall had supported John Kasich in the past, uh, and so he had really kind of uh, hung back. But again, the big news tonight, Chris Kobach getting beat by Roger Marshall. Again, Democrats had hoped it would have been Kobach because they thought that might have set up a better chance for them to actually pick up a seat there in Kansas. Of course, uh, the Democrats looking to, to take back the Senate in the fall. Uh, but that would be, if that happened, Chris, it would be the first time a Democrat had won that seat right. uh, for the Senate since 1932. Jessica Dean, thank you very much. An uphill battle for Democrats in that state, to be sure. Kobach is also relevant in terms of where we are right now. The president's bashing the idea of voter fraud. Kobach was his boy on that. Remember, that's the guy who put in, in charge of that Fugazi commission to track down fraud in the 2016 election. Remember, they had to disband it. So it's interesting that Kobach goes down in his own party at a time that Trump is playing that same song that you can't trust the system. You can only trust him. All right, another tragedy uh, that needs to be on your radar in Beirut. A massive explosion, all right, as strong as a magnitude 3.3 earthquake 
I want to show you this blast because you haven't seen many like it. What? I mean, it does look like a bomb went off. Uh, dozens are dead. Thousands are hurt. And there are lots of questions because we don't know that it was a bomb that went off. We don't know whether this was attack, whether is this about a manufacturing accident. Why did this happen? I mean, it is obviously spectacular to see, but what is behind it? Because a lot of people were hurt and killed. We're going live to our correspondent what? in Beirut next. Just about sunrise now in Beirut, Lebanon, where recovery efforts are still very much underway after this massive explosion that just ripped through that city. 78 people killed, 4,000 injured as something out of a movie. Many remain missing. Buildings miles away from the center were badly damaged, including our Beirut bureau. Our senior international correspondent, Ben Wiedemann, uh, was there when it happened. Here's some observations. It felt like an earthquake, and it looked like a mushroom cloud. The explosion in Beirut Tuesday, so massive, it shook the ground all the way to Cyprus, 150 miles away. The level of devastation is still being assessed with widespread destruction stretching for miles from the epicenter near Beirut's port. Firefighters and emergency workers rushed to the scene, one that the city's governor, Marwan Aboud, described as resembling Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Local hospitals were immediately inundated with hundreds of victims, and the Lebanese Red Cross put out an urgent call for blood donations, the casualty count staggering thousands injured and dozens dead, with the number of dead surely to rise in the hours to come. Initially, the state news agency attributed the cause of the blast to a fire at a fireworks warehouse, but shortly afterwards, the head of Lebanese security said the explosion happened at the site of confiscated high-explosive materials Lebanon's Prime Minister Hassan Diab later said it is unacceptable that a shipment of an estimated 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate was stored in a warehouse near the port for six years. That is the country launched an investigation into the cause, expecting an initial report in the coming days. The Lebanese president has ordered military patrols in the wake of the incident in a country already on its knees due to a failing economy and the spread of COVID-19. The Lebanese prime minister has announced that Wednesday will be a day of mourning. Ben Wiedemann joins us now. Thank God you and the rest of the team are OK. Anybody get hurt on our side? Uh, yes, our cameraman, Richard Harlow, uh, was on his scooter and was blown off of it. Uh, he injured his hand and he has a large gash on his leg. But despite that, he came immediately back to the office and did live shots for a few hours. But the office, Chris, is in shambles. Uh, this is our studio, was our studio. The windows were blown in, the frames of the windows blown in. Much of our equipment is damaged. I'm using this 
the only functioning microphone and uh, all our other cameras uh, are no longer working uh, as well. This office, like many in this building, like many houses and offices throughout Beirut have seen their windows blown out, massive destruction. And, you know, you were referencing the more than 70 people killed, more than 4,000 wounded. This is really just a very preliminary number. What we've had all night long is local reporters live on television going down the list of the people who are missing, and there are many, and also reading the list of the names of people who are in hospital, but relatives haven't gone uh, to see them. So uh, even though it's almost 6 a.m. here, uh, the city is still trying to pick up the pieces, right. and we will not have a clear idea of the extent of the damage and, of course, the final death toll. And the big question looming over it all is why? Uh, there, they're looking into whether or not it had something to do with manufacturing. The president here in America said uh, that he was told it was an attack. Now we're hearing at CNN from defense officials uh, that they do not have any proof that it's attack. So we'll stay on it. Ben Wiedemann, thank God you're safe. Send our best uh, to your PJ and the rest of the team. Appreciate it. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, the second installment of our life lessons. I'm turning 50 on Sunday. Can't celebrate anything these days. I'm certainly in no mood to. So what I want to do is tell you a little bit I've learned in these five decades. It doesn't even feel five days, but I'll make it stretch. Next. Lesson number two is you are only what you do. Now, why do I say this? Because it has complete application. Why am I saying it at all? Well, because I'm turning 50 on Sunday and I decided to celebrate with the rest of us by just passing along some of the things that are now painfully obvious to me um, as someone who's lived a long time, blessedly so, made a lot of mistakes and has become increasingly aware of their own flaws. We don't like to talk about that, especially in my position, right? We're supposed to go with some kind of illusion of grandeur, some kind of illusion of somehow being better than the people who watch us, somehow aspirational, but that's rarely the case. And when it seems that way, it's often fake. But the reality is that I think the more we can relate about our fragility, um, our flaws, our problems, our struggles, the stronger we'll become. Strong people make good times. Weak people make hard times. That's what we're dealing with right now. Part of our weakness is we talk too much. And we believe that too much is achieved by what is said. How? I love you. Yeah? Do you live it? Do you show me? Do you do things for me? Do you care about me? Do you put me before yourself ever? I'm a good dad. Really? Do you tell your kids no when they want to hear yes? Are you with them? Are you on your phone? Do you show them that they matter? Do you show them that you can be tough on them, but that you still love them, but that's not just some excuse called tough love, which is really just harshness as some proxy for strength? I'm gonna do the job for you. Do you? Do you work your ass off? Do you grind every day? I wanna lose weight. Do you work out? Do you diet? I wanna be better. I'm sorry is my favorite one. Don't say it, do it. Sorry is a promise to do something better. Show me. Show other people 
My goal is to show you. Talk is cheap. Save it. We talk too much. Life teaches you to do more and say less. If for no other reason, so much more is communicated with action than can ever be imparted with even the most eloquent prose. We are what we do, not what we say. We learn that in politics every day. We're suffering under the yoke of our misplaced trust in words right now as a pandemic devours us. What we do will define us. That is true for all of us and each of us. Life has taught me that, and I hope to not just teach that lesson or learn it, but to live it. You are what you do. That's lesson number two. We'll be right back. Time for CNN Tonight with Laura Coates. It is what it is, and that's an upgrade for D. Lemon. Ah, and it is what it is. That phrase is going to haunt me forever. You know, it's the kind of thing, it's just so cavalier, Chris. But you know it's not cavalier. I love your closing. I love the life lessons we're giving. And so I'm wearing my flowers for you because I feel like you got to have your flowers when you can still see them. Oh, ooh, that's good. Thank you very much. Hey, look, Dropping I gems applaud tonight. the president for saying it is what it is. He happens to be right. His problem is that it is what it is means that it is a pandemic. It is real. It's not a hoax. It's not going to magically disappear. And he's not doing a damn thing about it. He's not even talking the right talk in terms of you are what you do. Boy, if that's the measure for him, he's in trouble because he is the sum total of his inaction in the face of a crisis, the likes of which we've never seen a president run away from. Well, look, it's not just him. He's the sum total of it. it's all of us out here. I mean, it's one thing if you want to act the way you want to act on your own time, to on your own peril, all of those things. But I'm telling you, if your actions start to infiltrate into my life and undermine the things we want to do and make it harder for people to breathe, to live, let alone to thrive, you know, it's, it's more than just about you doing you. It, that's what it really is. It's about not understanding fundamentally that his actions have a ripple effect. His words have meaning. I mean, his, his platform is there. It is ubiquitous and everyone has to be able to trust the president of the United States and you see what happens when you can't. Oh, telling me. I'll tell you what, we've got some pain coming our way. And I'll tell you how, we're both parents, we both have kids mm -hmm. in, the, in the school game. Yeah. There's gonna be some ugliness. One, because you know what's gonna happen. Anybody who's got money is gonna start playing this pod game, which is where they're gonna start having these groups of kids together that mm -hmm. they're gonna pay, the parents are gonna pay for a teacher to augment all this stupid Zoom stuff we're gonna do, whatever the platform is. And there's gonna be exclusion. There's gonna be fights among communities and they're gonna be entrenched inequalities, all because we can't get the testing together. I got news for you, Chris. It's not, there's not going to be inequality. There has been True. inequality. And any return to normalcy can't be a return to status quo. We got to go forward. We're talking about places that don't even have broadband, let alone being able to use Zoom. But you and I are in the same boat. We all are. We got to figure out what to do. And our kids have to come first. That's right. Thank you. Laura Coates, I'll be watching. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.